Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast titled Revolution Z. This is our 62nd episode, and it will focus on positive vision for healthcare, or what healthcare might be like if we had a participatory economy, if we were in a participatory society, if we were enjoying participatory socialism. In discussing health and the economy, on the one hand, there is the issue of health levels and health care. How do we organize caregiving, pharmaceuticals, and associated treatment and research? But even before that, what is the relation of economic life to the degree of health enjoyed or the degree of illness and harm suffered by the population? Finally, beyond how we organize providing health care and beyond the issue of society's culpability in producing ill health, there is, of course, also the issue of receiving care. Who is eligible, to what degree, and at what personal and or social cost? For example, what happens economically to people who are unable to work, whether temporarily or even long-term or permanently, or for whom their health care costs exceed what their incomes can bear? And finally, given that presumably everyone would agree we want societies to have a worthy approach to health care, does achieving such a worthy approach place any undue pressure on economic life that a participatory economy would be unable to abide? Or, put differently, does wanting good health and good health care for all somehow point toward having capitalist economic relations, or does it instead entail having a classless and participatory economy? This logic of discussing health in society is very like the logic of other issues we have discussed. The heart of it becomes the impact of capitalism on the topic, in this case health, versus the impact of participatory socialism on the topic. There is a sense in which the situation of capitalism is well summarized by a quote from the social critic Andrew Schmuckler. Quote, which entrepreneur will the market reward better? The one who sells a device that will give many hours of joy over a few years before, for a pittance, it needs to be replaced? Or the one who sells an addictive substance that must literally be consumed to be used, and that itself consumes the life of its devotee? And capitalism, it turns out, not only private ownership, but also markets favor accumulation and profit-making, even when the profitable path produces ill health. Not only pharmaceutical companies, but even hospitals and all corporations generally seek market share and profit. The predictable outcome includes, as the most graphic recent exemplar of corporate agenda setting, the opioid crisis. More, potential patients without money get short shrift. Potential patients with money should be separated from it. Thus, there is excessive reliance on expensive treatment, often even useless or counterproductive treatment, and not on prevention. Those who own, whether it be the pharmaceutical companies or the hospitals or medical groups, benefit. Profit is always the dominant principle. Gains that aren't profitable only occur when someone puts up a hard fight against profit-making pressures. Ironically, everyone who reads popular medical suspense novels, or who even watches the better legal and medical dramas on TV, knows all this. But no one believes there can be anything better, at least until recently when Bernie Sanders has made Medicare for All seem possible. At the laughable, if it wasn't so utterly disgusting extreme, borrowing from Eve Angler's research, we note that, quote, a report by Health Grades, Inc. concludes that there were an astounding 575,000 preventable deaths in U.S. hospitals between the year 2000 and 2002, many from hospital-acquired infections. 
Likewise, an American study reported in the Chicago Tribune concluded that up to 75% of deadly infections caught at hospitals could be avoided by doctors or nurses using better washing techniques. As Angler concluded, quote, Billions of dollars are spent annually on the development of new drugs and medical technologies, but little is spent on basic hospital infection control, even though this would ha save a greater number of lives, because there has been little economic incentive to do so. Some company makes a profit when a new MRI machine is purchased, but the bottom line that benefits from better hand-washing techniques is only measured in lives. Consistent with all this, the AMA exists largely to protect the monopoly on skills, knowledge, and particularly the credentials of doctors, keeping the total number of doctors down to keep each doctor's bargaining power up, not least against aspiring nurses. In other words, the internal organization of healthcare, even against the better instincts of most practitioners in hospitals, clinics, and assisted living facilities, is bent by profit-seeking until hierarchies of income and power pervert caring and delivery. Angler, again, turning to the larger-scale phenomenon, notes that, quote, Recent American data, reported in New Scientist, July 2003, shows that more than 70% of hospital-acquired infections are resistant to at least one common antibiotic. Infections resistant to antibiotics significantly increase the chance of death. From where does this resistance come? It is, quote, in large part attributable to our overuse of antibiotics, which is connected to drug companies' bottom lines. To sell product, there is great pressure to give the drugs even when not warranted, so antibiotics are routinely overprescribed. This facilitates, quote, the growth of multi-resistant organisms. It is parallel to and due to the same logic and pressures as the opioid epidemic, and may well, in the end, have even more calamitous effects. Angler continued, quote, Half of all antibiotics sold each year are used on animals. Industrial farmers give their animals constant low doses of these drugs to treat infection, but also as a growth hormone. The administration of low doses is especially problematic since it becomes a feeding ground for organisms to mutate. Data shows a strong correlation between increased use of antibiotics on animals and the emergence of resistant strains in the animal population with mirrored increases amongst people. Profits of major food companies, of companies that can profit by polluting, of companies that profit from speed up and low wages, regularly run up against the health of the workforces and the whole populace. And in capitalism, the former are likely to win. In another case study, it turns out that as Stephen Bezruka reported some years ago, quote, about 55% of Japanese males smoke, compared to 26% of American men. Nonetheless, Japan has the greatest longevity for its citizens on the planet, and the U.S. comes in nearly 30th. Bezruka asks, quote, how did the Japanese get away with winning both gold medals? What is loaded in Japan's smoking gun? One explanation could be that while smoking is certainly bad for people, other prevalent health conditions in which Japan scores better than the U.S. are significantly more important. Bezruka reports that, quote, Research has shown that status differences between the rich and poor may be the best predictor of a population's health. The smaller the gap in status, the higher the life expectancy. The caring and sharing in a society organized by social and economic justice produces good health. A CEO in Japan makes 10 times what an average worker makes, 
not the 531 times in the USA reported earlier this year. And this was years ago, and Japan is far from ideal at that. A key lesson from all this is to realize that an economic system affects health in numerous ways. Perhaps the most important effect an economy has on health is the overall environment it establishes for people to live in, to endure tension and pain in, or to thrive in. But in contrast to understanding the overarching importance of economies, people commonly equate health with health care. One aspect, of course, but not the only aspect. But for that aspect, the U.S. spends almost half of all money spent worldwide on health care to serve less than 5% of the planet's people. And yet, despite this, health in the U.S. is not even top-notch, much less proportionately better than in other countries. This is partly due to the expenditures mostly benefiting a few rather than all citizens. It's also due to much of the expenditures being guided by profit motive rather than a desire to improve people's health. And it is due as well to the fact that other effects of the economy, pollution, tension, inequality, are so harmful. The U.S., for example, with the most prized implementation of corporate capitalist logic worldwide, is also first in voter abstention, homicides, incarcerations, teen births, child abuse, and child poverty, as well as in mental illness, and of course, in the number of billionaires. What all this has to do with health, and for that matter with science and technology, which we recently addressed, is that it demonstrates again how each can be misdirected, biased, and perverted by profit and market pressures. So what will be different in a participatory economy? All of it will be different. Participatory socialist firms won't operate in a market and will have no incentive to sell other than to meet needs and develop potentials. As a result, addiction will not be profitable. It will only be socially destructive. Deaths that can be prevented will be prevented. People will not be left to die because curing them isn't profitable. Research and technology will be directed where it can do the most good, not where it will be most profitable to a few. Participatory society will reduce deaths in hospitals that are due to insufficient attentiveness to hygiene or due to lack of or misutilized staff. And will also reduce deaths in society due to pollution of air and water, dangerous means of transport, insufficient attention to workplace health and safety, gun violence, poor nutrition, addictive consumption of alcohol, not to mention of opioids, stress-related suicide and disease, and excessive imposition of unduly dangerous or costly treatments. There will not only be no impediments to emphasizing real areas of benefit, there will be every incentive to solve social ills in proportion to benefits that can thereby accrue not to individuals hoarding property, but to all of society. In a participatory society, we will have the number of doctors that health warrants. No doctor will have any incentive to try to inhibit the number of people who get medical training. And doctors will have balanced jobs and sane work conditions, as will everyone who works. There will be no coordinator class interest in monopolizing empowering circumstances for anyone to protect at the expense of society losing the productive capabilities of most of its population. Similarly, in a participatory society, there will be no drive toward workplace speed-up and cost-cutting that destroy health. There will be no unjust gaps in income and well-being that produce stress and illness. There will be no vicious competition that demolishes human sentiment and caring. As a brief aside, have you by any chance seen the Bernie Sanders ad where he asks those watching if they can fight for the well-being of people they don't know as they are willing to fight for well-being of themselves? Think about that. 
Not just can you feel what he asked people to feel, but what it would mean if the question was normal, typical, a guiding sentiment of society, our upbringing, our schooling, the logic of our economic lives, as it in fact would be under participatory socialism. In that picture lies not the details, but the soul of real social health and well-being. At any rate, by way of contrast to capitalism, people throughout a participatory society will choose to work somewhat longer or somewhat less long in accord with the quality and richness of their lives thereby afforded, including attention to the health effects. Similarly, the huge gaps in income between owners, coordinators, and workers that generate so much ill health in capitalism won't exist in a participatory economy because such classes will no longer exist. More, everyone in a participatory society will have income in accord with how long and how hard they work, as well as the onerousness of the conditions under which they work, unless they can't work, and then they will get full income by right. Not only won't there be billionaires and paupers due to ownership differences, because no one will own means of production in a participatory economy, gaps in income will justly reflect and mirror gaps in effort and sacrifice, not bargaining power, and not even the total value of the product of our labors. We will have equitable remuneration rather than income for property, power, or output, as we've discussed in earlier episodes. In a participatory society, too, whether we are talking about the direction or the scale of basic research, or about the technology of healthcare, or the social structures that make either science or technology or healthcare beneficial or harmful, the guiding precepts are the same as exist for other participatory institutions, self-management by affected parties in pursuit of well-being and development, and in accord with equity, solidarity, and diversity. And then, of course, as to those who need health care, who receive health care, health care itself will be a right, not a commodity, and therefore personally free for all. Health care, like all other products of social effort, will be produced, distributed, and consumed in accord with human well-being and development for both the practitioners and the recipients. Of course, not all the ravages of disease will magically disappear, though prevention and treatment will diminish them greatly. And sadly, Old age will still bring with it steadily declining physical capacities, and what is even worse, often declining mental capacities, sometimes to devastating effect on the ill and on families and friends beyond. Though again, improved diets, less stress, and vastly better treatment options will reduce the damage greatly. Put differently, we have to acknowledge that participatory socialism won't be some make-believe fictitious nirvana though it will reduce pain and suffering from ill health when either is not totally preventable, and it will produce well-being and enrichment whenever human and medical care can do so. And so that is the difference between capitalism's epidemics of death by addiction, by preventable disease, and by debilitating stress, and by its perverse profit-seeking reductions and distortions of medical care, and the lives and souls of caregivers and recipients alike, and, instead, Participatory Socialism's universal delivery of care and support in an environment that produces vastly less ill health in the first place, for babies, for children, for adults, and for the long-lived. And speaking of the long-lived, next episode of Revolution Z will have as its guest Noam Chomsky. He will be doing part two of his session with me. He will address diverse topics of vision and strategy, but this time especially issues bearing on election 2020. Finally, if you have a chance, please let others know about Revolution Z to expand our outreach. And if you have a little means to put to the purpose, 
please visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash revolutionz to help support our efforts. Putting it bluntly, if everyone listening would do that, my financially being able to maintain and expand Revolution Z would be made secure. And so, that said, this is Michael Albert, signing off until next time for Revolution Z.